today to introduce Summit Dole. He's a research scholar here at NC State. He works with Brent Gould and Alan Lloyd. Previously, he was a postdoc here. He also um, did a postdoc at the University of California at Santa Cruz, and he got his PhD at UNC Chapel Hill. So he um, is originally from India, but now calls North Carolina home. He has a lot of experience um, looking at evolution and more recently pest management and gene drive dynamics. And today he um, will be telling us about his some of the ecological considerations that we should be thinking about um, when we're discussing these new technologies. What I want to do today is, you know, I was thinking of this talk and how to frame it. And I was thinking about it, like I realized that most of the, what I'm going to be talking about is things that I don't know or things that we don't know when it comes to how gene drives will spread in natural populations. And, you know, there's been a lot of research going on and gene drive, the field of gene drive, the modern gene drives, uh, since CRISPR was invented, is pretty um, recent. It's still pretty new field. So it's not surprising that there are a lot of things that we don't know. And, you know, hopefully as we go forward, we'll learn more, more things about um, the different ecological aspects of it. But there has been um, a very large amount of enthusiasm regarding um, the use of gene drives and all the ways that they can provide a solution for different things. And it's very well justified enthusiasm. There are good reasons to be excited about it. There are also good reasons to be um, for some concerns regarding biosafety. And what I want to talk today about is that there are also some um, valid reasons for tempering our expectations about how easy things are going to be or how quickly we're going to find solutions in this. And to another way to um, title for my talk, a clearer one, probably would have been ecological sources of uncertainty um, in gene trial spread. And I, today I want to specifically talk about three so, um, sources of uncertainty. And again, before I start, I want to say that, you know, I'm not going to show you any new results that is mine. In fact, most of the really cool, interesting things that I will show you um, is work of other researchers. I just wanted to put all of this together in this context for this audience. Um, all right, so I'm going to talk about how density-dependent competition between individuals will affect, might affect gene drive spread. I will talk about muted, uh, movement of individuals and mating behavior. And these three are not necessarily the most important ones or the only ones by um, any means. These are just the three that I have been thinking about um, our, our group at, with Fred Gould and Alan Lloyd, we've been thinking about these things recently. <clears throat> So I'm guessing most people in this, um, in this audience already know what gene drives are, basically. But just to, in case there is somebody new, gene drives are synthetic genetic constructs that spread rapidly in a population. So on the left side here, um, I don't know if you can see my cursor. Um, on the left side here is a normal inheritance where each allele shown here in red and blue is equally likely to be passed on to the next generation. And on the right side is a gene drive inheritance. So gene drives bias their inheritance so that they get passed on more often than is expected. So the 50-50 ratio. And which, what that does is that gene drives can very rapidly spread and replace other alleles in the population pretty quickly. 
Now this ability to completely replace alleles in the populations can be really useful. So for example, you can use gene drives to cause population replacement. So for example, you can link gene drives with um, beneficial genes that can, for example, you can put antipathogen genes in mosquitoes. And as your gene drive spreads, the antipathogen gene will spread in the mosquito population and they might not be able to transmit diseases. Now, in some cases, um, replacement will not solve the problem. For example, if presence of the pest itself is the issue. In that case, what you can do is you can use population suppression. You can link genes that really add fitness costs or reduce fitness of individuals. And as the gene drive spreads, the population size goes down and you, are, you will be left with a smaller population and in potentially in some cases, complete eradication of the population. <clears throat> and as you can imagine, when you reduce the size of the population, more ecological factors will come into play. So today for the talk, I'm going to focus mostly on suppression drives. But that doesn't mean replacement drives are not affected by ecology. Um, all right. So imagine um, some pests that you want to eradicate or suppress the population of. Now, the most efficient way for to do this by gene drives is to reduce the number of eggs that are produced. And one way to do it is to use gene drives to target female fecundity. So if you disrupt female fecundity with a gene drive, females will produce fewer eggs each generation and that can lead to population suppression. Another way to do this is to bias sex ratio. So during development, fewer females will develop and you will have a population that's mostly composed of males and very few females. And that will again lead to fewer offspring in the population each generation. So the goal is to reduce how many offspring are produced. And as you can imagine, most of the, the biggest push in suppression gene drive development has been in mosquitoes. Um, there's been some great work done at Imperial College in the UK, and they have developed multiple suppression gene drives that work pretty well, at least some of them. So they have a gene drive that targets female fertility, and they were able to show that the gene drive can lead to complete collapse of populations in the lab. So the red and blue lines here show um, the total egg out output in different cages. And you can see that by generation eight to 12, both cages had were producing no eggs. So this is a gene drive that disrupts female fertility. And females that have two copies of this gene drive end up being sterile. They developed, used the same gene drive and added a gene that disrupts the sex ratio. So during development, you have fewer females being produced. Um, and in addition to disrupting fecundity and that gene drive can collapse the population and even fewer generations. So this is your ideal condition where you cause complete population collapse, you know, especially at least for something like when you're trying to eradicate a pest. <clears throat> but they also had previously before this, they developed this gene drive that targets the particular gene, which is highly conserved. They tried a different gene drive targeting a different female fecundity gene. And they initially got a response where the egg output decreased in the populations, but eventually it shot back up. And what happened was that resistance to that gene drive evolved and it restored fecundity and the gene drive was not able to spread and the fecundity was restored in the population. Now, in this case, at least in the lab scenario, the resistant genes were mostly fit. So the number of eggs produced were fairly close to what initially was. But there are many reasons why that might not happen. So this is our ideal scenario of what happens when we want to do population eradication. But even when 
a gene, a resistant gene doesn't evolve to completely restore the fitness, it's highly uh, possible that you will end up with resistance alleles that are partially functional. Now imagine a resistance allele that restores 10%, 20%, or 50% of female fecundity. Now, gene, if you try to find these genes in natural populations, it's going to be really difficult because they have such low fitness. And they're going to be really difficult to detect in just population-wide screens. So they might get undetected. So genes that we think are incredibly conserved might not actually be, um, might still face um, gene drive resistance, as long as their fitness is better than no fecundity. So it's a very real possibility that even the best of gene drives will end up not completely removing all uh, offspring production, but will reduce it drastically. And what we want to know is what happens during two phases. One, when you end up with a resistance allele where you don't suppress the population completely, and also during this decline in offspring production. So during this phase when your gene drive is spreading in the population and suppressing it. And resistance is just one of the reasons that are Partially functional resistant allele, spatial structure, loss of drive efficiency as it spreads. There are multiple reasons why you might not immediately get complete collapse. So the first thing I want to talk about is density-dependent competition. So as you know, most pests that we are really concerned with, they live in very dense populations. If they didn't have very large dense populations, we wouldn't care so much about them. And when that happens, organisms usually compete for resources. So what happens when you reduce some of the offspring that are being produced. So imagine this container with some mosquito larvae. In most cases, not all of them survive, some of them die, and you get a certain number of mosquitoes. Now, if as your gene drive is spreading, or if you have completely as much reduced fecundity as much as you can, you're reducing the number of larvae that are born in a population. Now, if there is no competition, you expect the mortality to remain similar and you get about similar reduction in the adult population size. So there's 50% reduction in larvae, you get 50% reduction in adults. But what happens when you have density-dependent competition or any form of density dependence? So a few years back, um, a student from NC State, um, Rachel Walsh, she did experiments with Aedes aegypti. And what she did was she took naturally laid eggs in containers with that had naturally accumulated water. And she divided the larvae in each in two groups. So on one side, she had higher density with one X and the other side had four times the density. And she looked at how many mosquitoes came out and what they looked like. And uh, she was uh, one of Fred Gould's students. And what she found was that survival was as expected, higher in when there is low density, suggesting that there was competition. And also the size of the insects coming out was higher in lower density. And this you see in many different insect species in Drosophila um, and many other insects where you reduce density and you get bigger, healthier insects. So let's look at survival first. Oh, um, another experiment before that was done. This was from a long time ago, 77. And this was done in India in Culex. And what they did was they added specific numbers of eggs of Culex to these containers and left them in um, natural habitat. And they did this study in multiple seasons and with multiple different numbers of eggs. And the data here, it's a summary. I blocked out some of it so that it's not too busy, but you have this um, citation, you can go look it up. So you have different seasons in different rows. And on this column is 
the fecundity reduction. So zero means that you haven't done anything. And in that case, you would get 100% of adult population. And they want you to look at what would happen if you reduce fecundity of the population each generation by 50%. So they calculated survival rate, which is given here. And based on that calculated how many adults, what percentage of adults would emerge. So in most cases, survival not, the number of adults wasn't reduced by 50%, of course, because of competition, but there was some level of suppression, not as strong as 50%, but there were some. But they found that in few seasons, survival, the increase in survival at lower density was actually more than compensated for this 50% reduction. And it would have given more adults than expected. So this is a very unintuitive um, outcome, which is something that we definitely, we wouldn't want with gene drive. Of course, this wouldn't happen if you did even stronger suppression, but at least when the gene drive is spreading in a population, there is a small chance in some species, at least, you might get these temporary increase in adult numbers. So when you have competition, you could end up with more mosquitoes than you wanted to. Now, even if that doesn't happen, you still would get, wouldn't get as strong a suppression as you would expect from just reducing the offspring number. <clears throat> now, this is just the number of adults you get. Another thing this density dependence does is that it changes how well individuals can grow. So in this 80 experiment, the larvae that the mosquitoes that came out were larger, significantly larger, both males and females. So you might get fewer mosquitoes, but they might be bigger. And this could have, you know, many different effects. So one, larger insects in general tend to live longer. So that might have some implications for um, vector-borne diseases. Um, but there's also data on that larger mosquitoes might not bite as many times. But there are many different reasons why we should expect to have counterintuitive um, results coming from um, suppression of a population, at least transiently. All right, so both of these cases were when that I showed you was your, so on this axis, this is just a simple representation of density dependence. So you have population size, and this is a reduction in the number of eggs. So I showed you data where you reduce the number of eggs, and as you reduce more and more, initially it doesn't make any difference, or you might have a bump here, but eventually it decreases. And this particular pattern that you have might make a big difference in what happens eventually or even transiently. And there are many different patterns that are possible. You can expect if there is some alley effects so that small populations don't do as well, you might not be able to completely eradicate egg production, but small decrease it enough that the population crashes even before you remove all the eggs. And again, there are other possibilities. For example, you could have different relationships. And it's we don't have a very good sense of which pest populations follow which types of curves in what conditions. And all of these different patterns have been used in mathematical models to look at different things. And in, as you can imagine, they would have very different outcomes. For example, this would seems like it would be a great um, curve to have. So if you reduce egg number just a little bit, the population completely crashes. And this could happen, for example, in some aphids that once they have a large enough population size, they can overcome plant defenses, so they actually get a benefit from larger numbers. So this sounds like it might be great. Uh, I'll talk about when this might not be such a good thing. But there is a lot of different, a uh, lot of complexity in these patterns. All of these have been looked at. And they can change by 
season, different location by different species, and a lot of uncertainty in general exists in determining these. And they are really difficult to estimate even in lab conditions and even harder to do it in field conditions. So we should expect some uncertainty coming from just density dependence. The second thing I want to talk about is um, animal movement. So in the lab populations that I showed you the data on, you know, the lab organisms can't go anywhere. Um, they're younger, generally small populations and there's no migration involved. You don't have introduction of um, wild type really in most experiments. So to look at how different pests move. So this is an example, uh, a recent study in Anopheles. What they did was they released these weather balloons and attached sticky traps on it. And they put them up at heights, different heights ranging from 40 to 290 meters above ground. So pretty high when, and they looked at what Anopheles were caught in those. <clears throat> and what they found was they found that a large number of Anopheles of different species, not just Anopheles Gambi were caught in these. And what they did, the researchers, so this was a research done by people at um, NIH and uh, collaborators in Mali. And what they did was they looked at, use weather patterns, so data on wind current to figure out how much windborne migration could have happened in just that one night, based on how many mosquitoes they found. And they estimated trajectories of how far mosquitoes that they caught in these traps, how far they could have gone. And just to give you a scale, so this is Mali, this Guinea, Burkina Faso, and this is 100 meter, about approximately 100 kilometer bar. So within just nine hours, mosquitoes could potentially have traveled hundreds of kilometers. Oh, and again, just to point out that 80% of the flies that they found, uh, mosquitoes they found were females. So this does has, have quite a bit of implication for disease transmission. Um, if you look at mark release recapture and in mosquitoes, there has been a lot of research on mark release recapture. You see slightly different patterns. You get much lower um, dispersal rates. So this is the mean distance traveled by different mosquitoes and how wide um, area the study looked at. But in general, you get very different ranges. So there's a lot of uncertainty based on different locations that you look at and different species. This is data on 80s and studies done in different areas. And 80s generally tends to be more localized, doesn't move as much as Anopheles, but you still get a range from tens to a few hundreds um, of meters. So there's, even within a population, there's going to be um, a good bit of difference. So why does dispersal matter? So one thing why dispersal matters is that imagine you have a gene drive and you suppress eradicate a population in some area. The question remains, can wild type reinvade from somewhere else? The other thing is that imagine you have some hypothetical pest population and you introduce gene drive in a local population. The question is how quickly can it spread to other populations that you might want to suppress? or might not want to suppress. So I'm going to show you this really cool paper that um, came out from Ace North in the UK, and they used a very detailed model of Anopheles to look at how a gene drive would spread, a suppression gene drive would spread in Burkina Faso. So this is the whole country of Burkina Faso here, and this is a scale, approximate scale for, to give you an idea. And on the left is the distribution of mosquitoes four years after release, and this is eight years after release. And the different colored dots are showing 
blue is only gene drive individuals, red is only wild type, and green is a mix of individuals. And you can see that even after eight years, so gray is where the populations were suppressed, white is where there is no suitable habitat. So they actually collect gut data from landscape data showing where water bodies are, where habitations are, where rivers are. So you can see that in some areas you did get suppression, but in many areas you continue to maintain both gene drive and wild type mosquitoes. And just to show you what happens, so D is this graph and the ones in the middle where you don't get suppression, complete eradication are these. And you can see that there are seasonal cycles, which is expected, but you also get cases where the population gets eradicated and then you get reinvasion by the red lines here. So the wild type reinvaded. And in each of these cases, you have slight delay where you get population eradication and then wild type reinvades, then you get the gene drive coming in and the population goes away. Again, wild type invades and so on. So you end up across space, you get this pattern of for long-term maintenance of both types of mosquitoes. Um, there was another study that looked at something similar. This was a hypothetical population of some dots, some pests. And this is shown in a continuous landscape. Each dot represents, and this was study done by Jackson Champer. And each of these dots represents an individual, and each of those can mate with, dispersed to some area around it, and mate with another individuals. And gene drive is released right in the middle. I'm going to show you the video of what happens. And this is your ideal scenario, where the gene drive starts spreading, and eventually it removes all the wild-type individuals, and the whole population is eradicated. So this is your ideal outcome. Then ja uh, Jackson changed change just one parameter, they reduce the dispersal rate. So how far the gene drive can move and how far the wild type individuals can move. And with, simply by lowering dispersal, what they found was that initially after release, the gene drive starts spreading, you get this empty space, but that empty space gets, starts getting colonized by wild type. And followed by invasion of gene drive, then empty space, then wild type reinvade. So you get this continuous long-term behavior where the wild the gene drive is essentially chasing wild type population that keeps recolonizing empty uh, eradicated areas so what they call chasing now one thing that it can do is you can you can get persistence in space of wild type individuals which can so you your gene drive essentially doesn't do what you really want it to do the second thing that it can do is they did what they try to do is what happens if you have a chance of evolving resistance. So in this model, they had resistance that has some fixed probability that resistance can evolve in the population. And it's a very low uh, probability that they put. And they looked at how this kind of chasing behavior affects evolution of resistance. So again, you get this behavior, if you get empty space and wild type individuals reinvade again. But what happens is that because you have, it's a probability probabilistic event that resistance might come up, the longer you maintain a wild type population, the higher likelihood of resistance is. And here's resistance spreads and eventually resistance takes over the entire population. Now, depending on how fit the resistance is compared to wild type, you might get, end up getting really complex cycles where you have wild type population, then the drive invades, then the resistance invades, then you get empty space 
and you might get multiple cycles of these things and never get complete eradication. And this is simply by reducing dispersal rate. And this is not even directed dispersal, this is just random dispersal rate that was reduced. Another way that dispersal might affect is, imagine you have your gene drive and you want to eradicate these populations. And what ideally should happen is your gene drive should be able to disperse before it completely drives the population extinct. So from here, it spread to other ones. And then as you, the population spreads, the gene drive goes, uh, the populations go extinct after the drive spreads. So what you want, if you want to eradicate multiple populations is that you want dispersal to happen faster than the eradication happens. But if you have a gene drive that's incredibly strong and spreads really quickly within the population, but dispersal across populations is lower, what you might end up getting is your gene drive spreads and drives the population extinct before it spreads anywhere else. And this is when, again, this will interact with density dependence, where if you have this type of density dependence, even small reductions in egg output might crash your population. And when you have really small population, you reduce the likelihood that the gene drive will actually end up spreading to other areas that you want to spread to. So simply by, you know, these are fairly simple interactions where you just have random dispersal. You're not even thinking about active dispersal of individuals to actively occupy some space or directed movement. This is just a random movement and it still can have pretty severe impact. So in general, what, how did, will disperse affect? So to summarize, you know, gene drive spread across a landscape, a realistic landscape is really going to be determined by three things. How quickly it can disperse out of local areas, how quickly it eradicates and the rates of recolonization. So the rates of these three things happening will really determine whether a gene drive can spread not only within the population, but also between different patches. So you get this dynamics where we have wild type, gene drive, and empty space, and you get cycling between these, and you can end up with permanent cycles of this. And you can throw in resistance in here, and you get even more complex cycles. And just to highlight, you know, the data I showed you with mosquito movement is that these rates are not going to be constant across space. They're not going to be constant in different seasons and with different species. So there is a lot that we don't know. So it's it just adds um, more and more layers to of uncertainty to what we think might happen. All right, and uh, 12.30, okay. So I have a little bit of time. I want to talk about mating behavior. Now, this is the thing that we know probably the least about uh, of the other things that I mentioned, um, in pest populations at least. Now, mating behavior, I because we don't know a whole lot and we don't even know have too many theoretical studies of how different mating behaviors will affect gene drive spread. I'm going to talk about just one particular uh, study, um, which looks at inbreeding. So inbreeding is when related individuals are more likely to mate with each other. So this was a study by um, Jim Bull and colleagues. Um, and what they wanted to see is what happens if you're, if a population can evolve to higher levels of inbreeding. So what they did was they added in a model of um, a homing drive and a driving by uh, chromosome drive, they added a gene in a population that can increase and decrease, but that gene made those individuals more likely to mate with siblings. And you know the, how likely that individual was to mate with siblings can vary, but they had a gene that 
could make you more likely to mate with siblings. And they looked at what happens to the spread of the gene drive and also to um, the level of inbreeding in the population. So first, what they found was, no matter how, no, okay, before I say that, um, just remind, inbreeding can often lead to inbreeding depression. So mating between more individuals that are too closely related can cause reduced fitness. But what they found was that even for very different levels of inbreeding depression, um, they found that inbreeding always spreads to fixation in their model. And this was a spatially structured model again. So inbreeding always evolves and you can, no matter what level of inbreeding it is. So one is those individuals that have that particular allele always mate with siblings versus 0.5 would be half of their matings are with siblings and half of them are with um, non-siblings. But irrespective of that, it always spreads. So if there is genetic variation for inbreeding, it will spread in the population. They also looked at what happens to the gene drive. So this is showing the frequency of the gene drive based on the level of inbreeding that evolves in the population. And as you have more inbreeding evolving, the frequency of the equilibrium frequency of the drive goes down. And they also looked at what happens to the fitness of a population. And without inbreeding, the population fitness at the end eventually would have been zero because the, the gene drive would have spread to fixation. But if you had inbreeding, it helps recover some of the population's fitness and the amount that it's recovered will, base, uh, will be based on the level of inbreeding depression in that population. So besides just inbreeding, you know, this is just one thing. Um, there are many different things that happen in natural populations of mating uh, individuals, sexually reproducing individuals. There's inbreeding, there's mate choice. If you have mate choice against transgenic individuals, that's going to reduce matings between wild type and transgenics. You can have sperm competition, you can have cryptic choice where um, chemical dependent choice happens after mating. And all of these things could potentially reduce fertilizations between transgenics and wild types. And no matter which gene drive you're looking at, the rate that it spreads always depends on how easily, how many matings happen between your transgenics and wild types. Spatial structure, where I showed you where you have different groupings, it has the same things where if you get separate groups that are breeding within themselves, you reduce the likelihood of mating between gene drive and wild type, and that reduces how well it can spread. And there are many mating behaviors that can also do these things. So again, that's the only real study that we model that we have of mate choice, hopefully, and there are multiple people are actively working on this, but there's a lot that we don't know. Um, another thing that we recently started thinking about is what happens when you reduce the population. As population size goes down, it's going to get harder for individuals to find conspecific individuals. So in that case, this can just, the redu reduction in population size can favor inbreeding, but also it might lead to more hybrids forming, where if you have one species that can't find mates of its own species, there's going to be more pressure on those individuals to mate with the wrong species, especially in gene drives that do sex ratio bias. So you're going in populations where you have a whole bunch of males but very few females, there's going to be pressure on those males to mate with any female that they can find. And that can lead to hybrid matings with other species, which um, can further increase uncertainty about how well your gene drive stays within your species. All right, so there's, you know, I've told you just a, um, given a brief overview of all the things that we don't know. Um, and there are many ways 
um, forward. There's obviously doing more research is a simple um, choice. We can, we should be doing um, more empirical work, empirical work. And there are people already doing this. None of this, I, what I've told you is new, uh, my new idea. This is, people have already been thinking about this. We just aren't at a point where we know a whole lot. Uh, more modeling work is needed, but one thing is important to recognize that it is going to be difficult to know all the things that we want to know. So there's again, the question of how much more research do we do versus, or should we move on to contained field trials? Again, there is a question that contained field trials are expensive. They still involve some risk and they're going to happen in one locality. If you have a lot of variation in different places and how ecology works, um, our ability to extrapolate those results to natural populations where we actually want to use the gene drive are going to be um, lower. Anyway, so just I just wanted to give you an idea of all the things that we don't know about gene drives, um, just to kind of not to throw a wet blanket on the enthusiasm, but just to give an, some legitimate reason for tempering how excited we get about um, the quick solution of gene drives. Um, and I would like to thank members from my lab um, and also Jackson Champer for sharing those cool videos that he made, um, NIH for funding. Uh, and before I end, I want to um, give a shout out to Gene Convene. It's an organization that's um, working with FNIH to, uh, and they have been putting together these really interesting seminar series, online seminar series on gene drives. They have one that was about controlling gene drive. They have an upcoming one on invasive species management and information gene drive concentration, informing gene drive concentration. So you can register for that and I'll leave this page up um, if you want to write down the thing and you can look at the recording too. But um, that's all I have for today. If you have any questions. study that came out, a um, theoretical study of how likely it is that you might have gene um, horizontal gene transfer. And I don't know a lot about this. I think there are other people who don't uh, do more molecular biology might know more. Um, but I think that's a valid concern, especially in species that are very closely related. And when you're tar targeting genes that are very highly conserved across species, there might be some concern if you have hybridization. Um, if you're targeting genes that are not incredibly conserved across species, um, then I don't know how well gene drives will work if they move to a different species. Because, I mean, you know, as amazing these studies are, and some of these gene drives are incredibly well designed and they work really well, um, it's important to realize that they still are difficult to get, it's difficult to get them to work. Um, we've been fortunate that mosquito gene drives are working that great. 
Um, so I don't know how well they will work if they jump, but um, it definitely is a concern. People have been adding, there are ways to, uh, people have been working on ways to con keep gene drives contained in locations and in species, uh, but definitely it's a concern that needs to be kept in mind going forward. Um, there are also uh, ways to reverse gene drives that are um, using other gene drives. Um, it remains to be seen how well they work in realistic scenarios. I don't know if that really answers your question. Uh, it's very vague, but. Yeah, um, there, there is a paper, um, forgetting the authors at the moment, but they talk about um, hybridization, and maybe hybridization might be more important or more a potentially greater threat than horizontal gene transfer from some yeah. other. Yeah, it really depends on how well the gene drive will work in different species that it wasn't built in. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a concern. And I imagine that the ways that you can build a gene drive would increase or decrease that probability. Yeah. Um, okay, it looks like Max has a question. Can you unmute yourself, Max? Hey, Sam. Um, yeah, so the, uh, just listening to you, I just wonder, um, I guess the thing I'm concerned about is that people view gene drive, I've come to view it as like this magic sort of silver bullet and rely completely on the technology. You know, I'm sort of reminded of, you know, the sterile insect technique was used for 60 years to control screwworm, very successful program, but it failed in Jamaica. And the reason it failed in Jamaica was because largely people relied just on SIT to control the pest. They didn't have, didn't do the other things that other were, were done elsewhere. Um, so other control methods. So it seems to me, you know, this resistance is going to happen. And that if this is really tested in the field, that there people need, you know, a, an independent backup or alternative technology that can be used once the population is, begins to be suppressed. I mean, some some technologies are not used because they're very expensive. But if the population is suppressed significantly, then you could consider using that. Yeah, that's true. I, I think I mean, you're right. Um, I think my talk I gave the impression that uh, gene drives are going to be used as the only thing, um, but one they, they can't. And I don't think people who are using developing gene drives are thinking that they should use only that technology and nothing else. Um, yeah, you're right, it will have to be um, an integrated approach where you do gene drives, you have to probably still loop um, regular insecticide use um, and any other methods that are at disposal. Okay, it looks, um, we're like here, but do you want to unmute yourself and um, provide your comment question? Was that directed at me? I can't hear you. Yeah, sorry. Um, do you want to read your question? Oh. oh yes, I said, I, I recall there was some paper um, that I don't have on me, but they, they were talking about testing gene drives in microcosms um, as a, a medium to try to get between, uh, try to test how they work in complex situations without uh, the risks of like a cage trial out in the field. 
Um, does, does that work for you? Can a, can a microcosm be complex enough to deal with some of the population structure and other things you're interested in? Um, it depends on the species, right? I mean, or if you're thinking about something like Anopheles, you know, I mean, some of the new data that's coming out, they migrate hundreds of kilometers in very short time. Um, I don't know how well microcosms will be able to replicate it. But, you know, I, I don't mean to say that, you know, we need to know everything that can possibly go wrong or possibly might hinder gene drive spread. Um, microcosm experience definitely can add more um, you know, certainty or at least inform more things that um, so that we know at least the possibilities uh, that are there. Uh, with species that don't need to move a whole lot, microcosms could probably work um, well. It's just that, yeah, it's really difficult. Like even within a place, you know, some of that data on seasonal changes in density dependence, it's going to be really difficult to get a hold of all of those different things in all the places that you want to eradicate your pest from. Uh, it might be easier for something like agricultural pests because um, you have a contained population. Your goal generally is more localized than something like mosquitoes where your target is like, you know, continent or countrywide um, area. Um, but yeah, I, I'll, I'll look that up. I don't think I've seen that microcosm paper. Okay, um, Fred, would you like to ask your question? Yeah, I guess, you know, the, I, I wanted to say that the uh, Champer paper is really interesting. You know, you showed all of that movement around and the chasing. So in, in that specific case, when we're talking about Anopheles or something, um, we're really talking about the disease itself. So um, it's sort of a question of does that kind of reduction and that up and down uh, actually cause a decline in the malaria, which is really the the case, or could it, like with some of the genetically engineered crops, lead to more problems because you then uh, the malaria becomes less predictable. So people will stop trying to uh, deal with it, and then it comes back again. Anyway, I just wanted to raise that as as well as as just thinking through the Champer thing looks at a very strong gene drive, and I guess what you're you know there's some interaction between the movement and a weaker gene drive that would never cause eradication might be give more even suppression. So I'd like to hear your comments on those. Yeah, and definitely um, modeling what happens to the disease, you know, it adds a further layer of complexity. And um, there is a, so Alan has done some work about, you know, what happens when you suppress the disease for temporarily and you use some measures where you, the disease goes away for temporarily. And what happens is that you might end up with worse off than if you had done nothing because you get this buildup of immunity, um, sorry, susceptibility in the host population, or in this case, humans. And when the disease comes back, eventually you get hit even harder. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't know how the cycling, that kind of cycling will affect um, disease transmission. Of course, uh, another thing that um, I should mention is that, you know, in most of these studies, um, at least disease vector things. The idea is not necessarily, you don't need to completely eradicate a population. If you maintain a population below a certain level, there's a good possibility that the disease might um, not be able to spread effectively. 
So eradication is not necessary in many of these cases. Um, does that get at what you were saying, Fred? Yes, yes, it definitely does. Question in the room. Uh, Hi. Um, yeah. oh, wow. Okay. Uh, sorry, did you say? Do you have to talk out or I don't? Yeah, you have to speak up. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Hi. So, uh, I really like the the presentation. This brings up a lot of things that I've, you know, kind of, you know, have have lingered in, in my thoughts in the back of my thoughts when I've seen stuff about you know gene drives for pest. Uh, suppression. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about, since you talked about, you know, it's ecological sources of uncertainty. Um, I didn't see much about the effect on larger ecosystems. So have you seen much about that? Or have you seen much thought? Because it seems like, you know, crashing or, you know, a succession of like unpredictable changes in population is going to have some broader effects on the, the ecosystem, on the community for other species. Um, yeah, that's a great point. Um, I didn't talk about that um, partly because I didn't really know a whole lot. I'm like, I don't think I've seen um, a lot of research, at least in gene, uh, the context of gene drives, where people have tried to look at look at what happens when you remove a species. Uh, species of mosquitoes or some other pest. Um, for invasive species, you know, it's kind of clear that you want the presence of this pest is a problem and removing it will probably do good things. Um, with something like mosquitoes, um, yeah, you're right that it can potentially lead to um, other ecological things. There's a chance that a niche that's emptied out by, let's say, Anophilus gambi, um, Another species might fill that niche of uh, mosquitoes. Um, but yeah, th there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot we don't know about what will happen to um, other species of mosquitoes or predators of mosquitoes um, and any of those effects. Um, I have no idea, actually. I don't think anyone has really um, done any kind of um, food bird style modeling to look at what will happen. pollinators too of certain of certain wild plants so oh that's true yeah good point yeah could i just add a rodent point to that uh yeah john here would like to add a point i'm just thinking for rodents and biodiversity conservation oftentimes it's it's almost sort of strange to think about paradoxically the big hits come because predators build up feeding on these invasive rodent populations and then you end up with ecological surprise, in this case a bad surprise, when that food base goes away and you still have these hungry predators around. And so that might be a more of a short-term effect, but it can happen. And that's an example maybe of what you're talking about there. So. Um, it looks like Fred has a, another question. Yeah, I just wanted to add that in, in beads with uh, anopolis, uh, target malaria is doing a lot of to take a look at what the off-target effects could be of suppression of uh, anopheles. So, um, you know, it's different than the rodent situation probably. And uh, I mean, so far uh, the information I have seen shows very low uh, risk to the ecosystem, but I think the, the work is still ongoing. Uh, 
we have some people from uh, who's more closely associated with that. I don't know if they have comments. I want to, you know, so target malaria um, really should get credit for it. They're really doing a lot of work um, to, you know, so, like to look at what will happen um, in case of gene drive. They're doing a lot of work in terms of looking at some many of these ecological factors. Um, and one thing that I want to say, you know, it's not that like we're going to use gene drives on things that we're not already suppressing. We already are using pesticides and other methods to suppress mosquito populations. Um, so some of those effects on ecological effects, they probably are already happening. Maybe not, not as severely as you know, if you get rid, complete rid of um, those populations. Um, with gene drives, one benefit, potential benefit, is that you're only going to reduce the species that you're targeting instead of insecticides, which kill everything. Um, or kill all the insects in the area. That makes sense. So you have to kind of balance it based on you know what damage you're already doing versus um, what damage might happen if we use gene drives. Well, um, I'm just going to close with two comments that were left in uh, the chat, and then we'll uh, move on to Neha, so she can she has a little announcement she would like to give everyone. Um, the first comment is from David Obrachta. He says, interesting paper just posted in BioArchive by Jeff Hosick et al. that modeled spread of a replacement drive in Africa and noted the potential of windborne spread. Very interesting paper. And then uh, Stephen Panosian uh, said, thanks for your overview. Integrated pest management includes source control, pesticides, and biocontrols like gene drives and personal protection like bed nets and repellents. As much as I support gene drives, they are, are safer for frontline technicians. There is no single solution to pest eradication. Um, so at the source and uh, you know, interesting point there. And I'm Neha, I'm a senior at NC State University. Uh, we started an effort at the beginning of this semester called the CRISPR Hub. Uh, so we're basic, uh, the person who found the uh, prokaryotic basis of CRISPR, Dr. Rodolph Barango, he's on campus. He has a lab on partners too. He's an advisor. And uh, we just tried, we're just trying to disseminate like information about CRISPR as a technology and you know its ramifications in the future. Um, so uh, the reason I'm presenting today is because you're putting together an undergraduate team to participate in iGEM. iGEM is International Genetically Engineered Machine. Uh, so I believe there was one PhD team which came together into a, in 2014 from MC State to participate. Uh, we're looking to make an undergraduate slash graduate team. So yeah, so the CRISPR Hub is a student organization. We have um, we have around 80 members at this point. Uh, we're looking into CRISPR therapeutics in particular. So for the IGM, we are hoping to look into rare disorders, but it depends on how the team comes together. Uh, so we discussed papers, host speakers. We've had Dr. Arnab Sengupta from the biotech program. Dr. Barango talked to us, um, advised us, helped us you know, figure out what we can do in the CRISPR space. Uh, and our industry sponsor is CRISPR Classroom. They're a California-based biotech startup that's basically doing the same thing, but with certificates. Uh, they're disseminating information about CRISPR. So you can check out our website when you get a minute. I will drop the link in the chat. Could it be changed slide? 
So uh, IGEM 2022 is, again, as I said, it's International Genetically Engineered Machine. It was started in MIT at like in 2003. Uh, so we are going to have an information session about IGEM and putting together an undergraduate team um, tomorrow from 6 to 7 p.m. Uh, I will, the Zoom link is on the next slide. Um, introducing, I believe the Zoom link is on one of the slides. But uh, yeah, hold on one second. Uh, so could you please change? I'm going to present all this tomorrow from 6 to 7 p.m. So if you are interested, please uh, consider come, uh, you know, dropping in and uh, talking to us about it. Uh, could you please change the slide? Yeah, so for the timeline of the project, we're going to start idea generation at uh, this point. Uh, yeah, I'll just put the link in the chat. So we just start ideation this semester, and in 2020 spring, we start polishing the theory of the project, and uh, we start um, fundraising. Uh, we have These are the people I've spoken to until now, CRISPR Classroom, GES, OUR, and ASPIO. This is an expensive project. Almost every team has to pay around $5,500 just to participate uh, in iGEM, and ASPIO is offered to um, sponsor us which is why we are going ahead. Uh, in the, uh, the whole of the summer will be uh, just research and figuring out, you know, how much, um, whether our idea works, our research proposal works. And at the fall, we will be making a poster and presenting it like a scientific conference. Uh, so I've put down the time commitments as well, and I will go over it more tomorrow. I just have five minutes of your time today. I will find the Zoom link and put it down. Yeah, so these are project deliverables. Again, I will go to, uh, go through this tomorrow. Uh, there are nine of them through this one year time span. And uh, there's a form which I've filled out, which you can fill out if you're interested. If you're an undergraduate a student, please uh, consider joining the team. If you're a, um, if you're a graduate student, we're looking for advisors as well as uh, instructors. So you can also be an advisor. It'll look great on any resume. If you're a PhD student, same goes there too. Uh, hold on one second. I'm just trying to send a message to everybody. It's really been acting up. So that's the form which you have created just to uh, make a team. I'm sorry, could you please change the slide? These are the tracks to choose from for IGM. Uh, we're looking at diagnostics and therapeutics in particular, but you know, uh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, so that's the Zoom link for uh, the for tomorrow from six to seven p.m. Um, I hope to see you guys there. Thank you so much. If you have questions, uh, feel free to reach out to me. My email is also in the chat. Okay. Thank you, Neha. And uh, I was on that 2014 iGEM team. So if anyone has questions about the experience, I'm happy to answer if you're considering doing this. Um, it was definitely a memorable experience. So, okay. That is our time for today. Uh, thank you again, Sana. Thank you, Neha. Uh, thanks for everyone who joined us.